0: Good morning. It's a delight to be with you and to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Charles Blondin was a famous 19th century stunt artist and acrobat. He became famous in 1859 for walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. After completing his first stunt, Blondin announced that he was going to do it again, but this time he was going to push a person in a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. A newspaper reporter came to interview Blondin, and Blondin asked the reporter, do you think I can do this great feat? The reporter replied, I really believe you can. I think you're the greatest stunt artist of all time. You believe I can do it, asked Blondin. Well, then you get in the wheelbarrow. The newspaper reporter never got in. You see, for the reporter, there was a disconnect between what he believed and what he did, between his faith and his actions. He believed Belondin could accomplish the feat. He'd already seen the man accomplish great stunts. But when it came to acting on that faith, he hesitated. At times, we can be similar in our faith as Christians. We believe in God. We trust in Christ for our salvation. But if you're anything like me, there are moments in our lives sometimes even seasons in our lives, where there is a disconnect between what we believe and what we do, or between what we believe and what we say. The New Testament writer James saw a similar disconnect in the lives of Christians in his day, and he wrote in the letter of James to address this inconsistency in Christians. James saw that at times Christians could confess faith in God and then go on to do things Or say things that were completely godless. Living like God doesn't exist is like a practical atheism. We are living such practical atheism when we acknowledge God's existence, but yet God doesn't enter into our lives or every area of our lives as he intends. And it's this kind of hypocrisy that James addresses in our passage this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of James, to James chapter 4. Verses 11 to 17. James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. Now, quickly for context, the letter of James was written by the half brother of Jesus, the younger son of Joseph and Mary, who became a leader in the early church and the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. We read in the book of Acts that persecution came upon the Jerusalem church, and many of these early Christians were scattered into the surrounding areas outside of Jerusalem. James addresses these Jewish Christians as their former pastor, and he writes to encourage them to persevere through trials. He tells them to resist temptation, and he calls them to live lives that in every way would honor God. He's already spent considerable time in the book addressing the subject of our speech, and he returns to this subject again here in chapter 4. So skim the book really quickly with me as we review his teaching on words. Back in chapter 1... In verse 13, he tells Christians not to blame God for their temptations. It looks like some people who were experiencing difficult trials began experiencing the temptations that accompany those trials and then began blaming their sin on God, since God is in control of all things. And he says, Do not do this. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt us. Also in verse 19, he encourages Christians to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Slow to anger, knowing that the the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then at the end of chapter 1, in verse 26, he tells Christians that true religion includes getting a hold on your tongue. In chapter 2, in verse 12, he tells Christians that we should be speaking and acting as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. An echo of Jesus teaching that every idle word that man shall speak, he will give an account of on the Day of Judgment. And then chapter 3, the chapter just before our chapter, is his most extended dialogue on words. It's the the long section there on the tongue. And he warns of the dangers of our words, comparing our words to fire that destroys, and emphasizing that our tongues are impossible to control or tame with our own strength. James also in chapter 3 calls out Christians for how we can be double-tongued. At one moment, blessing God... And in the next moment, cursing men who've been made in the image of God. He tells these brothers, this this ought not to be. And then here in our own chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, James addresses the fights that too often characterize believers. And he asks the question, where do these fights come from? Are they the results of things outside of us? Our circumstances? Or other people? No, he says. These fights actually are the results of things that are inside of us, our evil desires. And that's where our passage picks up, starting in chapter 4 and verse 11. And if you're taking notes, the main point this morning is this. The main point. Judgmental words or boastful words reveal a heart that has forgotten God. Judgmental words or boastful words reveal a heart that has forgotten that has forgotten God. And we'll have two points this morning judgmental words, verses 11 and 12, and then boastful words, verses 13 to 17. And I pray that this morning we would have eyes to see any hypocrisy that exists in our own lives and in our words, but more importantly, in our hearts. But I hope that we will know not only the conviction of sin, but the hope that is to be found only in Jesus Christ, the Word of God made man, who alone can cleanse us from our unclean lips and wash clean our unclean hearts. Let's begin with point number one. Judgmental words, verses 11 and 12. Let's start reading in James 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I'm told that Today, the most famous Bible verse in the world is Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not, or you will be judged. This phrase, don't judge me, in so many ways can summarize the perspective that we have today. We don't want anyone to judge us. And in our sin nature, we don't believe that even God has the right to judge us. But the irony is, at the same time, we can be so quick to judge others to judge their hearts and their motives and to criticize them. The irony is that while we are quick to recognize a judgmental perspective in other people, we can be so quick to judge others ourselves. Well, what kinds of speech does James have in mind here when he forbids evil speech? I like how the CSB translates it, criticizing. That is, speaking against someone with an evil motive to tear them down. This would include all manner of critical speech that comes with an an evil heart, like gossip, which is talking behind someone's back to tear them down or to make yourself look better. It would include slander, which is talking about someone to discredit them or to ruin their reputation. James tells us that when we speak in this way against a fellow Christian, we put ourselves in the place of a judge, and not just the place of a judge, but a lawgiver above the law itself. And to do so is to judge the law, to criticize the law itself. The apostle Paul talks about in Second Corinthians these false teachers, these super apostles who were regularly comparing themselves with themselves and measuring themselves by themselves. And in doing this, he says they were not wise. We're quick to do this, aren't we? to be comparing ourselves with others or to be measuring ourselves by human standards in comparison with others. In this way, we can be like siblings who are fighting for our parents' attention or wanting to make ourselves look better than our brothers or sisters. If you are regularly doing this, Christian, let me encourage you to remember that if you are a Christian, that if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you are beloved by God. Spending time comparing yourselves with others and trying to make yourself look better than others before God has no effect on how he sees you. He loves you. Do not think that that you can get him to love you more by comparing yourselves with others or criticizing others. He is a loving father. Now, there is a difference between the judgmentalism that our passage talks about and the kind of godly judgment that we as Christians are called to do. In judgmentalism, we take upon ourselves a role that's reserved for God alone. But God does call Christians at times to judge rightly. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians 5, the famous passage on church discipline. Paul talks about this person who'd been caught in sexual immorality, uh, committing adultery. And he says at the end of that passage that they should be taking this person who calls himself a Christian, but yet is living in unrepentant sin, they should take this person and make a judgment about them and put them out of the church. And he actually uses the word to judge. He says it is right for you to judge those inside the church. Now, how do we tell the difference between a judgmentalism, where we put ourselves in the place of God, and the kind of right judgment that we as Christians are called to do as we correct and exhort and... At times, speak the truth in love to brothers who are in sin. Well, let me give you some practical points as you consider your speech. Here are six practical points, and I'll be, um, I'll be using these numbers as I go. Number one, as you consider your speech, when you go and bring your sin to others, number one, consider yourself first as you go and Seek of confronting a brother or sister in Christ? Consider yourself first. Matthew 7, verse 1, talks about taking the log out of our own eye first, realizing that we are sinners. This means that if we are living in unrepentant sin, we need to address our own sin first before we go and are concerned with the sin of others. But also... Know that in our attitude, as we consider ourselves first, know that we're coming to sinners as fellow sinners, that we're coming to citizens in God's kingdom as fellow citizens, not above them, but alongside them, and pointing them not to ourselves, but to God as the standard. Secondly, as you consider your speech, number two, consider your motivation. Consider your motivation. Perhaps the easiest way to recognize judgmental words is to look at the heart and the attitude behind it. Ask yourself, am I acting and speaking with love in my heart? Or is there hatred? Am I speaking um, and seeking my brother's good? Or do I really desire his downfall to discredit him? And remember that speaking the truth in love means that we consider both what we say as well as how we say it. The matter of our speech as well as the manner of our speech. Truth can be used as a weapon only to hurt But while the truth and love may wound, the motivation and the goal is to heal, like a surgeon who uses a scalpel to cut. But yet that cutting is is coming in order to eventually heal and to encourage, to to build up. Number three, as you consider your speech. Number three, be open in your speech. Be open in your speech. That is, don't say anything behind someone's back. That you wouldn't say to their face in the same way that you would say it to someone else. Now, for some of us, we find it easier to backbite, to talk evilly behind someone's back. This is a good rule for us to be open in our speech and to have care with how we talk about others behind their back as well as how we talk about them face to face. Now, others among us are a bit more fierce, we have more of an edge to us, and we have problem attacking people to their face. But let me tell you, the fact that you're comfortable saying mean things doesn't give you the right to do it. It doesn't mean that it's good. Number four. Number four, as you consider your speech, desire your brothers' and your sisters' holiness. Desire your brothers' and your sisters' holiness. That is, don't fear judgmentalism to such an extent that you never raise that awkward conversation with your brother or sister in Christ. We are called at times to lovingly rebuke and to correct our fellow Christians. And calling sin, sin is not judgmental. It's being faithful. We are called to take God's side against sin, against our own sin, and even against the sin of our brothers or sisters in Christ. James will go on to say this at the very end of the book in James 5, 19 and 20. His final two verses in the book says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins let me encourage you christian to do whatever it takes to get in the way of your brothers and sisters in christ and their ultimate destruction desire your brother or sister's holiness number 5 number 5 imitate god in your speech Imitate God in your speech. Uh, Another way of saying this is make Ephesians 4 your roadmap for how you speak. This section, James is highlighting what not to do with our words. That is not to criticize. But what are we to do with our words? Well, Ephesians 4 is a wonderful roadmap for our speech. Look at a couple of verses there with me. Ephesians 4.15 says that we should be speaking the truth in love. And in this way, With brothers and sisters speaking the truth and love to one another, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by what every joint or member with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at verse 25. We're to be putting away falsehood. And let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, knowing that we are members of one another. Look also at verse 29. Do not let corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And instead of that, verse 32. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And number six, a sixth practical point, be quick to seek forgiveness. James is assuming that all of us are stumbling with our words. And so that means that we need to be quick both to offer and to seek forgiveness. Do you know we can hurt one another more deeply with a handful of words than we might do with all of our physical strength. If you know you have hurt someone with your words, do not pretend like you haven't sinned. Pursue them. Ask for their forgiveness. Don't go on pretending you've done nothing wrong. And when someone asks for your forgiveness, remember all that God has done to forgive you in Christ and forgive them. Those of us who have authority in different ways have unusual power with our words. Those in authority have unusual power with their words. I want to think for a minute with us some of these categories of people and how their words might have an effect. Let me begin by talking with you husbands. Husbands, let me ask you, how do you speak with your wife? The Bible is clear that you've been given authority in your marriage and in your home. And that means that your words are powerful in that context. So let me ask you, husbands, do you use your words to build up your wives and to encourage her? Or are your words often full of criticism and nitpicking that cloud the fact that you love your wife? Does your wife know that you love her by your words? Husbands, how do you speak about your wife when she's not around? When you're with your friends or co-workers or family? Do you speak about your wife in such a way that shows that you honor her, that you treat her with respect? Wives, let me ask you this morning. The Bible is clear that you have been given authority in your home to be managing the home under the authority of your husband, but As the one who is closest to your husband, the closest human relationship to your husband in this world, your words have a lot of weight too with your husband. So let me ask you, wives, how do you speak to your husband? Do you speak to him in such a way that would encourage his leadership, that would give him confidence to seek the good of of you as his wife, the good of your marriage, and the good of your home? When he's made mistakes in the past, do you regularly bring them up, which would cause him to hesitate and to not have confidence to lead? Or do you speak in such a way that lets him know that you have his back, gives him the confidence to take steps of leadership? Let me ask you, wives, how do you speak about your husband when they're not around, when you're with your friends or your moms or your sisters or your coworkers? Do you speak about him in such a way that shows That you are seeking to honor him and to treat him with the respect that he has been given in the position that Christ has given him over you. Dads and moms, dads and moms, how do you speak with your children? You know, when it comes to human words in this world, I don't know if there's any more powerful human words than the words of parents to children. In terms of the effect that it can have, both for good as well as for harm. So let me encourage you, dads and moms, to consider how you speak with your children. Are you speaking with your children in ways that point them towards Christ? In ways that encourage them and give them confidence to grow in their abilities and in their gifts? I know that we are called as parents at times to correct and to discipline our children. It's good and right for us to do. But are you disciplining your children in love or out of anger? Are you using your words to hurt Or to correct and to build up? Let me encourage you, dads and moms, when we sin, and we will sin in our parenting, do we pretend like we're perfect? Or are we willing to come to our children and to ask and to seek our children's forgiveness? I think at times as parents, we think it's our job to model perfection for our children. The problem with that idea is we're not perfect. It is not our job to model perfection with our children, but repentance So let me encourage you, moms or dads, if you have sinned against your children in your speech, let me encourage you, go to them and say to them, son or daughter, daddy sinned against you. I'm sorry, I should not have spoken to you that way. Will you forgive me? And let me encourage you, I think your children will be quick to forgive you and to mend that relationship. And I think that healing will be so sweet for that relationship. Do you see that when we criticize others, we in fact desire to be in the place of God? To be God? That's what James says here. When we criticize others, we are saying we want to be the ones to make the rules and to create the standards. We are saying when we speak evil of another... We are making declarations about what that person is and what they deserve. We are literally condemning them in in our own court. My children like to climb into my office chair at home and pretend to be daddy. Such pretending is cute and comical for children. My son Jack loves to climb up and bang away at my keyboard and say, Look, I'm a pastor. Do you see what James is saying in this passage? That this is what we're doing. But it isn't comical. We are literally, when we speak evil of others, we are climbing up into God's seat. And we are declaring ourselves to be God. And we are making judgments and pronouncements on others. Not only could we never step into God's shoes or fill out his chair, we have no business ever trying. Who are we to take such a position? James tells us, Christian, Step down from your high seat. You are no judge. You are not God. Only one can take that position. Look at verse 12. What qualifies someone to be a lawgiver and a judge ultimately? How many lawgivers and judges are there? There is only one. And what qualifies him to be the lawgiver and judge? His power to save and to destroy. Christian, do you have this power? No. So who are we to judge each other? The answer? Nobody. We are nobody to judge one another. So do not seek to take others into your hands. The judge is coming soon. Don't let him find you in his seat. He won't be amused. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. Imagine for a minute that you were Satan. Think of the tactical advantage there would be in getting Christians to be fighting with one another and criticizing and tearing one another down. He's getting Christians, when this happens, to do his job for him. It's a a two-for-one sale. Not only is he getting them to do his job for them, he's distracting them from their purpose on earth and from their mission to be preaching the gospel and to be living holy lives that proclaim the gospel with what we say and what we do. My Christian brother and sister, remember Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Do not do his work for him. The remarkable thing about our passage here is that the only one who alone was right to judge and to condemn, he didn't do it. He didn't use his authority to come and to condemn the world, but to save sinners he stepped down from His throne, from His judgment seat, and He came to earth in kindness, to be born as a baby. He lived among us in this fallen world. And He came to show us the way of mercy. He took upon Himself our judgment at the cross, so that God could relate to us, no longer as enemies and as sinners, but, but, but to relate to us as a Father, as His own children. Remember, when those were killing him on the cross, were nailing him to the tree, what did he say to his father? Father, condemn them because they deserve it? No, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our example. If we have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, let me encourage you follow in his footsteps. And look at each other with mercy and not with judgment, remembering that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's point number one, judgmental words. Point number two, boastful words. Point number two, boastful words, verses 13 to 17. Let's pick up reading in verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James continues on with this subject of our speech, but he turns now to the subject of boastful words. As we can be godless with judgmental language, literally putting ourselves in the place of God to judge others, we can be godless in another way, with the way that we speak of the future and the way that we make our plans. Making declarative assertions about the future here does two things. Number one, it forgets that we don't know the future. You know that? We do not know the future. You see that in verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows that. And in fact, for all we know, today may be our last day on earth. God may bring us home. Christ may return. Christ may return before I finish the sermon, before I finish the sentence. We cannot see the future, and to speak as if we do is to put ourselves in the place of God. But also, such declarative assertions about the future does a second thing. It forgets who we are as God's creatures. James is reminding us that we are always those that have been created by God. We were created by Him, and we are completely dependent on Him for life and for breath. God created us to be weak so that we would delight in relying on Him for strength and for direction and for purpose. So, what is James' solution to such boastful speech about the future? Well, look at verse 15. Christians should say, Lord willing. If you've heard Christians say, Lord willing, this is where it comes from. If you don't say, Lord willing, when you talk about the future, maybe you should. James is saying here, as we think about our plans for the future we should be saying, if the Lord wills, we will still be alive and then do this or that. As you think about your plans and your, even your work, which is what James has in mind here, I'm reminded that some jobs are more tangibly dependent on God than others. I grew up working on a farm and learning much about where we get our food from and our dairy products from, as I worked on a dairy farm as a kid. A lot of the farmers in our town were Christians, and they prayed a lot, because so much of their livelihood was dependent on the rain, and on the weather, and on things that were outside of their control. My first job out of college was waiting tables at a restaurant. And I remember that first job, going up to every table, and praying to God, dear Lord, please provide for me through this table. Let them be generous. I had a job that didn't have a steady paycheck. There were times when I had a bill due and I knew I had to write that check and put it in the mail the next day. And I didn't have enough to write that check. And so I'd be praying over each and every table. And I saw God provide in unique ways as I waited on Him in prayer. But then I got a job that had a steady paycheck. And all of a sudden I stopped praying that God would provide for me in my work. I started planning. I started putting together a spreadsheet and planning for the future. And I began to forget that God is the one who provides everything that we have. We can be like this as we think about the future and as we make plans for the future. So what does this mean? Does it mean that we should stop planning? Does it mean that we should sit at home and do nothing? Does James mean that we shouldn't conduct business? Well, no. He's not saying that at all. He isn't saying don't do business. He's saying do business in a way that honors God. And how do we do that? Well, by accounting for God in our speech and in our plans. We should apply Proverbs 3 5 and 6, that memory verse that so many of us know. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. The Thessalonian epistles forbid idleness and laziness in Christians. There were Christians who said, Well, Christ could return at any time. I'm going to sit at home and be spiritual and wait for Christ to return. When really, what they were doing was relying on other Christians to go out and work and for them to just be lazy and to enjoy the fruit of others' labors. And Paul says, such people, he said, do not feed them. He said, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. In other words, an able bodied man who refuses to work must feel the pangs of hunger that would motivate him to go out and get a job and to begin providing for his own needs and the needs of his own family. even to have enough to be generous to others. Now, I don't know many of you, and I don't know your situation or how you have made plans or how you have made decisions until now. But I wonder if if any of us today have acted pridefully in the way that we have planned, the jobs that we have taken, or perhaps even the cities that we've moved to. I believe that we all have to consider how we have acted in the past as we consider this passage. So how do you think about the future and speak of it? Does God show up in your thoughts and in your words and in your plans? How do you make decisions about the future? Well, I think we need to acknowledge that naturally we're going to want to make decisions independent of God, or at best to come to God with our our plans all nice and packaged with a bow on top and simply ask him for a rubber stamp or that final seal of approval. So how do we make decisions as Christians? Well, let me give you six more practical points as we consider decision-making as Christians. Six more practical points. Number one, as you make decisions and plan as a Christian, number one, consider God's priorities. Consider God's priorities. That is, as you think about the future and plan for the future, be concerned not only with your own, desires and your own priorities or the desires and priorities of your parents or the perspectives of your culture, you should be asking first and foremost, what are God's priorities for me as I live in His world and seek to honor Him? And that means being concerned not just with what job to take or or who, who to marry or the, the, the big, what seem to us the big decisions in life, but the everyday decisions of of, of living lives that honor Him in this world. Number one, consider God's priorities. But secondly, secondly, seek counsel. Seek counsel as you make decisions. God has given you wise people here in the church that you can go to for counsel. He's given you elders. He's given you wise Christians around you. The Bible is clear that with a multitude of counselors, there is safety. If we walk with the wise, we will be wise. Why should we make decisions all by ourselves with only one set of eyes on something when we could so much benefit when other wise people help us to think through such decisions? As someone who has been an elder and a pastor in the past, one of the most difficult things for me to experience as a pastor is people in my church who make huge life decisions, And never come for counsel, but they inform the elders of it afterwards. When there were things that they should have taken into account and didn't, but it's too late. Let me encourage you Christians to seek counsel. Number three, as you make decisions as a Christian, be sure to weigh all of your responsibilities. To weigh all of your responsibilities. So often we can think as if money and our responsibility to earn money is the most important thing. And we think, I need to take the job that pays the most amount of money. But yet we don't weigh all of our responsibilities. That is the responsibility as a husband or as a wife. The responsibility as a father or mother. The responsibility that we have as Christians to our church to be faithful members in the body of Christ. One of the more striking and encouraging things that I love seeing among Christians is Christians taking a job that pays a little less because of the other benefits that come along with it. I was meeting with a, a friend in the last couple of months who had a job offer to make more money and to have a higher position. But he realized that if he did that, he'd be traveling more and he would have less spare time in his schedule to meet up with other Christians and to be involved in discipleship. And he decided not to take that job so that he could be more involved in the life of the church, and in growing as a Christian. So number three, weigh all of your responsibilities. Number four, pray. Pray before you make the decision. Pray as you're making the decision. Pray after you've made the decision. Pray alone. Pray with others. But pray. This is one of the clearest ways that we can acknowledge God with our decision-making. Number five, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying this is follow your conscience as the Holy Spirit speaks to your conscience. Your conscience is your internal sense of what's right and wrong. The Bible has a lot to say about living with a clean conscience and making decisions that, that, that are sure to be giving us a clean and clear conscience. You see there in in verse 17, that if we know what's right to do and we don't do it, we are sinning in a great way. It may be that your conscience is telling you something to do that is right, but your culture or your family or some other people in your lives are encouraging you to do something that goes against your conscience. Let me encourage you, Christian, follow the leading of the Spirit and do what is right, even if it may be inconvenient. And, and I know that as you look back on that decision, you will have joy. And number six, a sixth practical point, consider your spiritual health. That is, consider your spiritual health and not just your physical wealth. As you consider making decisions, I wonder how often your life in a healthy church comes into play. So often as... Americans as we make decisions. We begin with where we're going to work. We want to find the best job we can that will pay the most and we're going to move there and we're going to then find a house or an apartment or a place to stay as close as we can to work and then we're going to look around last of all to see if there's a church somewhere nearby. What if we flip that on its head? What if we began by thinking through our life decisions not based on the best job or the highest paying job But where is a church where I know that I'm going to grow spiritually? And let me build my life closer to the church rather than closest to the highest paying job. Consider your spiritual health. So often we can make decisions that ensure that we'll be physically wealthy, but at the cost of our spiritual health. Let me encourage you Christians to be concerned first and foremost for your souls and not just for your bank accounts. In this way, in making decisions in ways that honor God, Christ is again our example. He did not take his future into his own hands, but he entrusted his life in the hands of his Father. You remember when Satan came to him? He offered him the kingdoms of the world. He offered him everything on earth if he would simply bow down and worship him. It looks like Satan was offering him a shortcut in which he wouldn't have to go to the cross. Look, Jesus, I'll I'll, I'll give you this world and everything in it if you'll just bow down and worship me. And did Jesus take his future into his own hands? No, he entrusted his future to his Father. Even as he was in the garden, praying, sweating drops of blood, and crying out to his Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What did he hear from the Father? He heard no, but what did he say to his Father? Not my will, but yours be done. I know a passage like this is hard for all of us to hear, because all of us sin with our words so often, but the Bible is clear that our words are like a thermometer. They are telling us something of the temperature of our souls. Just as you put a thermometer in an oven to see how hot it is, that thermometer doesn't it hot or cold. It simply tells you how hot or cold it is in that oven. In the same way, our words are like that. Our words are a thermometer that are telling others what's going on in our soul. Out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says, the mouth speaks. So as you consider your words, realize the solution isn't simply to stop talking, put your hand over your mouth. Such Solutions will not work. The only solution that can work is to have our hearts made new. Only a complete transformation will do from the inside out. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're considering your own words and you're considering the possibility that you do not know God because of how you speak, let me encourage you to go to God, to bring your sin to Him and ask Him to wash you clean. He will do it. Christ will be your Savior if you will come to Him in repentance and faith. And He will make you new. And He will begin to form you to be more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. This Christ, though He was the judge, didn't come to condemn the world. And though He was God, He humbled Himself and put Himself in the hands of His Father and followed His leading. So, as you consider Christian. This passage, as you consider the kind of godless living that we can be involved in with our judgmental words or our boastful words, let us remember that we have actually been made in the image of God. And those of us that have come to know Christ, that image can begin to shine brightly again. And rather than being godless with our words, we can begin to be godlike in the right way, not in an evil way. I love how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4. That we as Christians can speak as if we're speaking the very words of God. Let me encourage you Christians to allow your words to be reflecting the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. And who gives you a model of words that are full of love. Full of goodness and kindness. Words that will build others up and not tear them down. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage that is so convicting for all of us. Thank you for not leaving us in our sins or treating us as our sins deserved, but coming to us and offering us forgiveness for our sins and a new way of life in which we can experience what it means to be like you in our lives and in our words. We pray that you would help all of us To not just feel conviction, but to begin to take the steps that are needed to pursue holiness, not just with our lives, but also with our words. Pray that, that we would seek forgiveness where it's needed, that we would turn from our sin where it's needed, that we would seek others to help us living this life, and that we would see you changing this church to be a community of sinners that is looking more and more like our Savior with each passing day until Christ comes and calls us home. And when seeing him, we will be like him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.